So welcome to another episode of The Shredder Show. Today, with absolute pleasure, we've got superstar guest, uh, coach extraordinaire, Callum Rehstrick from uh, The Muscle Mentors. So today, we're going to talk through building maximal muscle tissue, which is something Callum's done himself uh, with an incredible amount of tissue you've built, which I, was, I saw an old video of you the other day cropped up somewhere, and I was like, is that the same person? <laughs> uh, so welcome to the podcast, Callum. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you for the uh, immense introduction. Um, so to start off on that note, how much muscle have you added in the last few years out of interest, actually? Um, so, well, the, 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 the first time I competed was in 2019, and I was uh, 202 pounds the morning of that show. Um, and then I pushed up over the last kind of 16 months, I pushed up just over 100 pound. Okay. Um, and then I, I, this, this is the, now is the first time I've kind of, I've, I've pulled down and reset from that first push. Uh, and I'm about, I'm about 280 pounds now. And I reckon if I were to fire to dart for another 10 to 12 weeks and took maybe 30 more pounds off, there'd be, I'd probably be two in the mid two forties on stage. So that's like 40, 45 pounds of, of tissue in a year. I think like, looking at some of your recent pictures as well, you're still very lean at that weight as well, which is, which is a uh, impressive feat. So I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. Well, how tall are you? Six, four. It's a big guy as well. So it's uh, a lot of frame to fill out. Uh, it takes time, man. It takes time. That's the, uh, that's the thing though. Like, you know, when I was, even when I was 200 pounds to, to have another hundred pounds of body mass added from that and still not be, I don't want to say not in proportion, but to, to still not be quite there in terms of filling out that frame. It just shows how much is needed for a taller guy. 100%. I think that's one of the things why, uh, from the outside looking in, like, like what you do, I've always been so impressed because you practice what you preach so well, which is always awesome to see in terms of from a coaching level of things. Mm-hmm. Um, from your side of things, obviously, you mentioned coming out of like your last show, how you've grown exponentially from there like we're going to the first subject of that of like optimizing that window sort of um post show or post diet with people say post holidays and we used to be able to do those sort of things yeah and crazy world we're in what's your do you have a specific tactic in terms of how you've managed that yourself and with your clients or do you try and keep people relatively lean with that sort of phase or do you jump calories up quite quickly i think um one thing you've got to appreciate when an individual is that lean when body fat is that low, uh, we're, we're going to be in a position where there's going to be quite an excessive degree of super compensation regardless of what we do. So immediately post-show or post-shoe or, or post-holiday, when you are in that resp- highly responsive state, the, the goal shouldn't be to open up the toolbox and exhaust all the tools very quickly. And that can come from you know calories, that can come from workload with training, the goal should be to try and get the most from the least for as long as possible and then add to it when, when that progress starts stalling. So immediately off the bat from, from my show, there was an initial calorie escalation and that initial calorie escalation was essentially there to just shift fatigue and put me back into a place where I could actually recover and I wasn't in prep ultimately. Um, and then it would just reset to that initial set point and then we just slowly move from there. I think one thing that people get into the habit of doing when they are in that post-show period, especially when motivation is high to make progress, is they'll just exhaust those avenues too quickly and then find themselves starting to tread water a little bit quicker than they needed to in that off-season phase. Whereas, you know, I've, I've extended out that, that period of improvement for just over a year by being incredibly patient with how I was approaching it, as opposed to 
being too aggressive from the offset and then starting to realistically lose variables to actually adjust when the time's right. Like we only, just like you would in a diet, you know, if you had a client that was losing two pound a week, every single week in a diet, and that was keeping them on track to get in condition for a show or a shoot or a holiday, you know, let's try and sustain that two pound a week loss for as long as possible. We would, we wouldn't suddenly cut the calories and add cardio if they were continuously losing two pound. And it's the same as that post-show period. Like if we're able to progress training sessions, recover, you know, if we're slowly, you know, managing that progression whilst holding body composition and staying lean and sensitive, we don't need to be adding food and we don't need to be pushing training volume. So it's only, it's only adjusting those variables when, when absolutely needed. And I think the one thing that people go wrong with is they just struggle to have that level of patience in a period of time where motivation is so high to make progress. It's one of those things, almost chasing it too fast. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. And with that phase, do you think those people trying to push the calories too quickly out of the gate and try and take their food up too fast? Yeah. Like the, the, the thing is, in a situation like that, you're going to be, you're going to have such a high level of insulin sensitivity. Your ability to partition food is going to be exceptional, but it doesn't mean that we have to completely fill that quota immediately. We can still gradually build to it. So, you know, out of that post-show window, if we are getting really nitty gritty with the ability to regulate that, you know, we can be looking at, you know, all stomach markers, tracking blood glucose management, all these things that basically show us what's happening when we look at putting the, putting food in, putting food in the body and what we're essentially doing with that food. And we can then govern how quickly we can realistically add calories by what's happening from a blood glucose management perspective relative to, a, to our ability to partition that food and what's happening compositionally as well. Um, people want to add calories quickly, but they don't necessarily need to add them. Do you say with your own case as an example, did you add your calories primarily from carbohydrates back in first? to try and improve training performance? Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a huge advocate of super, super high, super high fat unless it's, uh, unless it's required from a, from a calorie density perspective to bring food volume down or if we're running a, what I'd refer to as kind of a reset phase where the goal is to improve insulin sensitivity and reduce carbohydrates. So I think in the, in, in the back end of prep, my dietary fat was at like maybe 35 or 40 grams tracked per day on my fitness pal so everything included um and now it's it sits at about 80 grams a day so it, it's doubled from what it was but it was very low in prep but it hasn't gone super super high like for the most part if we look at what our most easy, readily available fuel substrate is it's going to be carbohydrate and as long as we can maintain the ability to utilize those carbs then that's realistically going to be our um our primary go-to when it when we look at calorie escalation and the same goes for for protein, there may be an argument that we could manipulate protein year round based on the phase, but realistically in a phase like this for me now, you know, protein escalation is probably going to have more of a, a harm than the natural value because the higher I push that protein intake, realistically, A, it's not needed and B, I'm just increasing the load on my GI as well. So carbohydrates would be my, uh, my most logical tool to use there, yeah. That was going to be my next question. So obviously, if your food, in particular, with someone yourself, is such a big frame, probably needs a huge amount of calories to to get you to where you want to be. It's almost that fine balance of managing the digestion whilst taking the calories up and not overdoing it, which I think is where people go very heavy on protein straight away, and I think that's what causes a lot of problems. Yeah, hundred percent. Like my my protein year round will sit somewhere between you know two hundred and eighty to 
300 grams a day. So if I'm, if I'm eating five meals, I'll probably have, you know, around 60 grams of protein per meal. But if, if I'm 300 pounds, then that works out around one gram per pound. So it's not a crazy high amount. And that's with everything tracked as well. That's yeah. like trace, trace, trace protein from cal- uh, from uh, carbs and everything. Yeah, you literally wears my mouth. That's literally what I was about to say. If you're about 280, 300 and you, you weigh around that, you're about a pound per gram of body weight, which is sort of what I do. I tend to sit about 210, 220 grams and pounds-ish weight-wise. So I tend to balance it out together yeah. as well. So like the, the amount of... Um, I've seen it countless times where you'll have people pushing into an off-season, you'll have clients that consult with you in an off-season where they're struggling from the standpoint of regulating the ability to manage their GI, the ability to manage appetite or digestion in general or motility. And you'll look at the diet and protein will just be astronomically high just because it's like, it's the whole, you know, innate bodybuilder trend of I've got to have, you know, 350, 400, 450 grams a day. Realistically, you know, we're going to get to a certain point where we can only maximize and, and 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 tap out that threshold of mps so much and everything above that amount you know if i was going to eat 500 grams of protein a day it's not gonna it's not gonna give me another 30 40 percent when it comes to regulating muscle protein synthesis and driving anabolism so and, and increase nitrogen retention so it's just gonna increase the load on my, my gi so often pulling protein down to a much lower set point will alleviate a lot of those digestive symptoms straight away um, and especially when calories are high, like that is the perfect time to pull protein down and utilize other macronutrients like carbs, for example, because they are going to be much easier to break down from a, from a pancreatic and, a, and an acidic perspective in the, in the GI. You could argue in, in prep, you know, that could be a time where we push protein a little bit higher because you might find some satiety benefits from higher protein in prep, or you could argue potentially, especially for someone that's unassisted in prep, um there could be there could be some uh preservative benefits from higher protein intake in terms of maintaining lean mass and 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 driving more anabolism in prep but um yeah high protein more often than not is is definitely not the way to go it's interesting you know, i for the first time i worked with dr dean quite closely and he um i said to him I was like let's try this i wanted to drop my protein down because i was previously doing around 300 grams a day i was yeah. like when i was dieting it's like let's drop my protein down and bring my carbs back up because i just cut my carbs down and i was literally starting to hit a wall and i was like let's just drop the protein down take the carbs back up and i felt like night and day difference for exactly the same amount of calories and progress just continued and it's it's one of those things that you have to sometimes i think when you're more experienced you're more aware of how you feel but i think it's uh, as you said everyone gets stuck in the same root of almost copying everyone else that you have to do 300 grams of protein or whatever it might be um, and they just follow along what everyone else does and that that's a perfect example as well of you, you in you in a calorie deprived state you in a in an energy deficit and overfeeding on that protein isn't necessarily giving you any benefit whereas we look at the ability to metabolize that carbohydrate and use it as fuel then we're having an immediate impact for the same calories on recovery satiety performance so you know, from an energy balance perspective, yes, you could probably argue there'd be a minuscule difference in terms of the thermic effect of the foods you're eating, but we're talking like tiny, tiny amounts. And and you've just taken the same energy balance, so you're still going to mobilize the same amount of body fat and body weight, but you've just completely preserved your ability to perform and recover just from just manipulating the balance and split of those, of those macros. In regards to um, digestion, do you have 
like particular strategies you tend to use yourself with clients in terms of optimizing that as you're taking calories up across the like an off season? Um, so I think especially when food starts to get high and even from the standpoint of as we're, as we're kind of moving into an off season phase and we're starting to build into that diet, getting a pool of foods that we know and trust when we look at, yes, they're, they're palatable. So we know we can eat them even when, even when hunger is a little bit lower because hunger signaling is not going to be sky high forever. Um, but they're not pro-inflammatory. They're not going to create a negative response when it comes to the ability to break those foods down. Um, so for me, for example, like if, if my carbs are super, super high, the majority of my carbs will be, will be rice based. So I'll have creamy rice, jasmine rice. Um, the majority of the carbs will be rice because I just process that, process that the most efficiently. So it's eliminating any of the foods that we know set us back a little bit in terms of digestibility. And we can see that from, you know, irregularity in stools and motility. We can see that when it comes to how you feel post meal, how it impacts blood glucose management. Um, but obviously food selection is a massive one. And then just from the standpoint of looking at the power the nervous system has over the digestive tract, and you know, you'll see, especially from the muscle mentors way of coaching, you'll see a big, a big shift to the focus on the autonomic nervous system in this parasympathetic and sympathetic state and the, and the flux between the two and the power of driving clients and, and athletes into a parasympathetic state around mealtimes. Because when we're in this sympathetic state, when we're in this chronically stressed state, and that can be related to lifestyle, sleep, prep, whatever, you know, we're going to get a certain suppression of processes within the GI process within, you know, saliva being produced or enzymes and acids being produced in the GI to break this food down. We're going to get some suppression within the secretion of those, of those tools and those tools play a massive role in digestion. So, you know, instead of looking at just focusing on the diet and the foods you're eating, let's look at how a client's actually approaching a meal. Are they sitting down and eating in a low stress state? Are they chewing food thoroughly? And most time people, people are on autopilot when they're eating food, they're not really aware of what they're doing. They're just shoveling food down and then getting back to the laptop and doing check-ins again. So we're being more aware of, you know, especially when food is high, we've got to put the body and the nervous system in the best place to actually break that food down in the first place. It's one of those things I think is very interesting is that the, a lot of the very top level bodybuilders aren't very type A, like go, go, go driven personalities. Yeah. And I think that's a very interesting correlation between them having the best physiques in their world and probably like not being stressed all the time. Yeah, hundred percent. You see that all the time as well. Like uh, somebody I was speaking to last night, um, where there's two people that come to mind, Oscar, who's a really close friend of mine, Oscar in, in Manchester, and uh, he's called Young4040 on Instagram. Yeah, you know. I know Oscar. And um, Josh Maley. Josh Maley is the most chilled person you'll ever meet in your life. But he's also Mr. Universe, amateur and pro. And you do get that a lot with these elite level athletes. The ability to remain calm, not let things aggravate them across the day, stay in that low stress state, sleep well, just focus on the task at hand, live in that little kind of bodybuilding bubble so to speak and it produces the best athletes because they're not constantly overthinking and stressed about every every little degree is that something you actively work with with your clients you're coaching yeah like this, this is where the whole notion of uh having your kind of non-negotiables across the day and across the week and having your boxes that you need to tick and then the the fixation over especially from an athlete perspective just focusing on what is in your control and then not playing so much emotional attachment to what's not 
because most of the time, like if we can optimize what is in our control, then we're going to continue moving forwards in the right direction. It, it's the it's the people and the client personality type and the psyche type that do tend to overthink a lot, and that internal stress that's created from that can be very very damaging in that situation. Hundred percent. I think in particular with uh, this scenario of the uncertainty of the global climate, to keep it short of that, and yeah. um, there's a lot of that going on and. That's something not from what's going on at the moment, but I personally have found as a challenge with having a lot of plates spinning. So I've actually started working with a, like a performance psychologist to try and help yeah. me control that. And it instantly that's been like life changing, just creating more control in, within my life. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm a big advocate of doing. I think a lot of like big gym guys are too, um, well, I don't know, too hardcore or too macho to talk about that. But I think, the mental side of things has such an influence on everything. I think the more people understand their own minds and the way they think, the better the results they'll get with everything they do. 100%. And you'll see that in, in it. I think you'll see that in every industry. The people at the, at the very top are the people that have, you know, spent time and, 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 and done, done work in terms of mastering the ability to, you know, control mindset and look at the psychology behind that and a lot of those elite level guys in whatever industry especially sport you know the, the psychology the psychological side of that is a huge component 100 now with the come back to the sort of topic at hand um growing coming out of the like a lean estate would you look to taper people down in terms of cardiovascular work would you stop that cold turkey what's your opinion on cardio in, in the off season generally um the majority of clients will have significantly tapered if not removed that additional output before the actual end end event end show because we we would in an ideal world get them into a position but before they peak for that show or that shoot they're in the lowest stress state possible because we can only manipulate calories and and manipulate these little variables to create a, a better presentable package if stress is low if stress is high things are going to be super un unpredictable so Cardio in particular and training volume will be ideally brought down to a, a, a minimal set point or as minimal as we can before the actual show or the shoot. Now, there is definitely merit in terms of uh, continuing to keep some aerobic conditioning within the off season, especially for a bigger bodybuilder, especially for a bodybuilder that's going to, you know, if, if we look at what, what gets most people and, and we're more so looking at the, um, the assisted realm of bodybuilders now, but it will apply to anyone in terms of health management long-term. If an individual is putting on a lot of lean mass and they're carrying a lot of body mass for a long period of time, a lot of the complications that come from an individual's health is simply due to the stress that that body, that body weight has on their physiology and their heart long-term. And the heart is just like any other tissue in the body. We've, we've essentially got to train it and make it adapt. So keeping some aerobic conditioning in across the year, in my opinion, is actually essential for not only maintaining the longevity of the athlete's career, uh, but their health. And also, you can also argue, as long as we're doing it in a way that doesn't impede recovery, and for the most part, in an off-season phase, it's going to be non-glycolytic, it's going to be probably, you know, 
around 120 beats per minute non-glycolytic cardio, uh, what we'd refer to as kind of steady state, I guess. Um, as long as it's not impacting recovery negatively, it's only going to have a positive training from the standpoint, uh, positive impact from the standpoint of training. So, you know, maintaining a higher level of work capacity when they're a heavier body weight in the off season. There's nothing worse than, you know, if, if I'm at 300 pounds and I'm not walking the dog or I'm not doing a little bit of activity across the day, you put me in a set above eight reps and I'm keeling over, falling off a bench or, or, you know, crawling myself out of a leg press because we lose the ability to work in those more, um, those more like uh, kind of higher end rep ranges just from a cardiovascular perspective in terms of conditioning. So it has a, it has a, a multifaceted uh, level of value in an off season, you know, in prep, we're using it to essentially manipulate energy balance for the most part, but in off season, it then comes into, you know, health markers. It comes into the ability to maintain performance at heavier body weights. It's uh, something that people will see as not necessarily conducive to muscle gain, but I personally view it as something that is going to benefit muscle gain as opposed to hinder it if it's managed appropriately. How would you normally structure that in? I presume you'd put that just on rest days to keep it away from yeah, training. So like if somebody was training five days a week, then they might have two conditioning sessions across the week on those rest days. Um, and we just do it in a way that we knew, and we could monitor this as well, but we do it in a way that we knew wouldn't negatively impact their, their training sessions for the week. What's your opinion on uh, hit cardio in that scenario in the off season? I presume steer clear generally because of the impact on recovery. Yeah, and and we've got to think as well when we look at what we're actually trying to adapt and the threshold, the the, the kind of the the energy system and the threshold that we're going to tap into and make. We're, we're trying to make aerobic adaptations now. The anaerobic side and the and the, the glycolytic side is is being tapped into when we actually train. So when we're looking at especially in, a, in, a, in an off-season phase from the standpoint of minimizing the risk on you know, impeding recovery and generating those aerobic adaptations, we're looking at, generally speaking, lower, lower heart, heart rate threshold activity, so, so more steady-state work. 100%. That's uh, one of the things I think too many people try and do is they go too heavy with the cardio all the time and then they just end up spinning their wheels. And that, that goes for prep as well. Like It goes for, goes for prep in terms of... Um, yeah, you're going to have a big impact on energy balance, but it's the uh, it's the consequence that comes up. You know, if, if we're doing hit five times a week, or you're doing hit, you know, even if it's sometimes less than that, it's uh, it's the ability to maintain training output and recovery whilst that's in alongside. And typically speaking, one of them one of them is going to suffer for most people. So you mentioned there in terms of energy balance with when you're pushing your clients through the off season, do you have a set point you would be looking for them to be in terms of a rough surplus? Or you literally just go based upon their their check-ins weekly, how, how they're going, just incrementally add, take food up, probably mainly from carbohydrates as you go. Yeah, I'm um, the the way I coach is very uh, is very reactive in terms of what I'm seeing on a week-to-week basis in terms of feedback. Um, instead of being proactive, where I like lay out right, this is how the next four months is going to go, and this is what we're going to do at week eight, week ten, week twelve. I 100 percent agree with that because I thought like. Realistically, you can say whatever you like, but no one knows what's going to happen. You're taking an educated guess. Exactly. You've just got to you've got to read what's in front of you at the end of the day. And even if you were to, sometimes I'll map out a timeline and I'll be like, right, this is a rough idea of how this is going to look. So the client the client can have some clarity in terms of what they're heading into. But it's very rarely what what I've actually put on paper to the exact point. It's always going to change in some degree. And do you normally work with people looking to try and go up like certain weights? 
per week in terms of body weight or would you be looking for their weight to progress or again just go on visual and then also training performance and strength increases yeah i think collectively you'll you'll look at multiple variables like there's body weight is no doubt uh, a variable that we can track and and take progression from but we've got to be looking at you know having that multi-pronged you know where where performance is where recovery is where's body composition in their, in their photos what's happening with body weight and even a week where body weight potentially holds, but we've seen an escalation in performance and recovery has been fantastic. That's still a week where we've won. Um, so we're trying to look at multiple variables there as opposed to one. And I think more often than not, the more, um, the more fixated we are over body weight in an off season and just driving that number up, the more blinded we can actually be when it comes to actually making progress. I think in prep, when we're in an energy deficit, Maintaining a certain rate of loss keeps us on track and keeps us on schedule and gives us a target and gives us something tangible to hit. But in an off-season phase, setting a rate of gain target can be a little bit risky because if we're, if we're making decisions to force that body weight up when we don't necessarily need to, there's, a, there's definitely going to be an increased risk of them driving more, more adiposity or more body fat on at a heightened rate when not necessarily needing to go to that point so soon, if that makes sense. From, from personal experience, whenever I've done that, or I've uh, seen done with other people, it never turns to end very well. Because you just get blinded by the fact that, oh, I haven't gained one pound, so I'm going to have to have more food. And it's like, well, if you take a step back, how's your training on this week? How, how have you recovered? Like, have you beaten, your, have, you, have you hit your volume landmarks? Or have, you, have you progressed your sessions? And they've said yes to every single one. It's like, why have you increased your food? And it's also how's your digestion? Because I find a lot of people, when they get to the point where, they're trying to push their calories up and their weight's not going up. Their digestion's a complete mess. 100%. And they just try and throw more food in. And I'm like, you're just making a bigger problem for yourself. Like, this isn't helping the scenario. With anything, it'd be better off taking the food back for a little while and then going back up again. Exactly. It's just, it's just a, it's adding to that systemic stress. And what you just said there in terms of pulling food down and then pushing back up is something that, you know, I'll, I'll, call, it, 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 I'll call it resetting when I do it with clients. But this is something... I've done for the last year myself, and it's something I religiously do with clients, especially male clients who typically have to push food a little bit more aggressively is I'll take them to the, the upper end of the, what I feel is their threshold for pushing food and maintaining appetite and maintaining the function of their GI on that level of food and progress. And I'll pull them down before I feel as though we've reached, before, before I feel as though we've crossed that point. So it may be, you know, for, um, you know, Joe Brightman could be a good example where in this off-season phase, we might have had 10 weeks of pushing where we've, where we've put on six, seven pounds. Now, I know that I could probably squeeze another three or four weeks out of that phase, no issue. But by the end of that four weeks, he's going to be a little bit more inflamed. Blood glucose management is going to be a bit more of an issue. Appetite is starting to diminish. And if we push beyond that capacity and that threshold, that's going to be weeks and weeks and weeks of me trying to fix that. So I'll push them to that end point. And the longer you work with someone, the better you get this, you better you get, uh, you, better you, get a, you know, monitoring it. We've done the same thing with Dean as well. Um, it's pushing to that point and then pulling back for a couple of weeks. And that could just be like resetting, pull protein down, pull food volume down, pull calories down a little bit, lower stress, and then push back up. And when you push back up, they're in this super responsive state again. So they just push that a little bit higher and then you pull down again and then you push back up again. And it works a treat and realistically, you know, keeping athletes lean, keeping athletes sensitive, keeping athletes healthy, 
you know, sustaining the longevity of progress over a long period of time. It's the only way we can do it and still progress for six, eight, 10, 12 months. That was something I was going to bring up is that what I've noticed with a lot of your guys, why they progress so well is they've done very long off seasons, but they've also stayed conditioned for a long period of time. And do you put that down to the fact that you're going up and down quite a lot, like you said, with reset phases, just to almost try and like mitigate the uh, adipose tissue going too high, if that makes sense? 100%. Yeah, 100%. It's uh, something that works really, really well for, for males and females, but it's... Um, yeah, I think keep, keeping athletes sensitive, keeping athletes, um, it's, it's keeping them in, in, a, in a place where they're recovering and they're responding and not trying to push too far north of that at any point across the year. Visually, do you have anything you look for on that side of things? Is it where people start, to start losing their abs or is it very person dependent in that respect? In terms of like body composition? Yeah, body composition. When you do yeah. that, resetting with people. There'll, there'll be a tolerance there in terms of like the level of um, change from body composition, but like I'll have I'll have a, a little bit of leeway, especially for for, ma- for bigger males. There'll be a little bit more leeway in terms of how much body fat I'll allow to accumulate. To accumulate, but looking beyond body composition, like if we were to see in a gaining phase, the metrics that I'm tracking, like sleep start to diminish resting heart rate starts to increase blood pressure starts to increase particularly when it comes to nutrition and their ability to to you know partition food blood glucose management starts to compromise and that starts to increase gradually over time that's the point where the body is essentially telling you that's that's me done in terms of making progress in this push and i need to reset and i need to resensitize and i need to go again because for the most part you know, most people, not most people, but, you know, if you look at this a year ago, when you started talking about an aura ring and a, and a glucometer and a blood pressure cuff, people would just kind of turn the lip up at you and say, oh, I didn't do that 10 years ago, so I don't need to do it now. But we didn't really know how to apply it 10 years ago. Now we do. And this is why it's such a valuable tool, because it's showing you internally what's going on, as opposed to just looking at a photo and being like, oh, is he, is he fat enough yet to, for me to stop or not? Mm-hmm. You know, it's telling us what, what actually, how we can kind of plot this stuff over, over time in terms of metrics. And that data is, is invaluable. I think uh, something I'm a huge fan of is, is the aura rings. I think for the fact, just people being more aware of their own sleep and their activity, and by you being more aware of it, there's no doubt that you'll improve that. And yeah. that on the beneficial effects overall. And like, you know, it's uh it's something you can track on your coaching sheets, but something I've found with uh like I've had clients use aura rings, whoop straps, all these different things. It's uh it's it's educating them on their own recovery ability. And you know, I'm although I'm monitoring the data and analyzing it on a weekly basis, because they're seeing it day to day, they're becoming more aware of oh. You know, last night I did this before I went to bed or I drank that or I had my last meal at that point and I've seen this percent this morning when I woke up. So they're becoming more aware of how to optimize that within their own day as opposed to me. Almost I, I, sometimes I don't even need to tell them what to do because they'll almost, they'll become in tune with that just from yeah. tracking it themselves. So intuitive. A great example with, uh, personally with that is that I used to like eating quite close to going to bed until I clocked that my resting heart rate was super high all the time whenever I did that. Yeah. As soon as I pull that back and I had my last meal, say two hours before going to bed, it'd be four to five beats per minute less over the night, which yeah. is a big difference. hundred percent massively. And it's uh, that proximity to, to bedtime, especially for, for bodybuilders and physique athletes who are on a, on a large amount of food. 
that can completely cripple sleep quality. Um, when we look at the escalation in because of the digestive processes and resting heart rate, and you can also look at the relationship between bile production and sleep quality. Um, you know, pulling that last meal forwards, you know, a couple of hours for bedtime, like you said, is uh, something that you know every single person I've done that with is um, it has a positive impact on recovery and sleep, and that uh, that kind of age-old bodybuilder habit of I have my last meal right before I go to bed because I don't want to go catabolic in my sleep. We've just got to look at, right, what are the consequences actually having on the biggest tool you have for recovery in the whole toolbox, which is your sleep. Like, how can we improve that in every way we can? I think it's like that old uh, bodybuilding myth of getting up during the night to eat as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's probably the most disruptive thing you can do. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Um, take things as more of like a training ta tangent. What's your like specific approach for that. I know obviously you do a lot of work in terms of more like progressive overload. I know you were doing some fortitude training at Scott Stevenson's a while ago, I believe. Yeah, did uh, uh, some, some um, fortitude stuff last year for sure. Yeah, I did that actually in the, in the first lockdown. I, uh, in March last year, I started that because of uh, A, limited kit and B, limited time because everyone needed home workouts. So I was like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to drop down to, I started on three days a week and then moved up to four. And I ran that for about four months, four or five months. How did you find that? I'm interested. Uh, it was very different to start with training three days a week. Um, but it was a lot, it was a lot of fun as well. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Scott. And uh, if, if anyone ever gets a chance to read his books, um, be your own bodybuilding coach in particular as well. He's got fantastic content, but Fortitude something where uh, I, li I like the, the way that he separates the volume into tiers. So he's got this like tier one, tier two, tier three. Tier three is something that I don't feel as though any human could recover from ever. The turbo tier, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Um, and then tier one and tier two, you can kind of, you can dip in and out of that as, you know, based on your, your own ability to auto-regulate your recovery, which I like a lot because it gives you some structure as to how you can manipulate that based on how you feel. Um, but, you know, increasing, increasing training frequency to that level, you know, some tissues being trained four times a week, that was definitely novel. And there was most definitely some, some novel adaptation as a result of that. Um, and it was a lot of fun, but it's very, very hard. And I think once you get to a certain point, it will be, I think long-term, it will be extremely difficult to continue progressing performance in a framework like that um, when, you are, when you are relatively strong. So like if I was hip hinging and squatting and, you know, especially in, when I was training in the garage, I was squatting twice a week, it just completely battered me. Um, so I think I lasted four and a half months and then I had to throw in the white flag before I broke. But um yeah, that, that was productive. It was a lot of fun. I definitely recommend. Uh, I definitely re recommend having a go if you haven't before. Yeah, the muscle round days are interesting as well. That, that's something I found. Yeah. Uh, I was traveling around a lot at the start of last year when you were allowed to do that, and uh, I found those particularly helpful for when traveling with limited equipment. And it's just yeah. easy to try and keep your training up and not have to be too stressed about schedule. Yeah, I think if uh, anyone's listening and they are training at home and they they've got a relatively good skill set when it comes to training and execution fortitude is um is a pretty sweet setup in terms of home training if you've got some dumbbells maybe a pull-up bar and you know some some bands you could set up something pretty nice at home yeah you don't need a lot of equipment for that not at all with your approach generally in terms of training do you have a specific way you tend to like to train your clients 
or methodology? Um, I, I've got like, I've got principles in terms of what I'd look to do within a phase and how I'd look to set up a program. Um, but a lot of that, you know, I'll kind of pride myself on the fact that a lot of that will differ from client to client relative to the situation they're in, relative to the goal, you know, their, their ability to recover, what they need to actually focus on within that phase. And, you know, for a, for a, a more base tier client that is either gen pop or just wants to kind of get in shape or they don't necessarily have any highly competitive goals and they just want to progress, doesn't necessarily need to be as, as detailed and meticulous as if I was, you know, programming for someone that's going into their first pro pro show or trying to turn pro, for example, but we're still following the same principles. Like we're still looking at micromanaging recovery, starting a phase with the least amount of workload possible and then adjusting from there as we need to, um, you know, regardless of how you're packaging volume across, across the weekend, regardless of exercise selection that you're, that you're picking and relatively speaking, that exercise selection needs to be relative to their structure and their, their, their kind of makeup from an anatomical perspective. You know, we're, we're essentially looking at maximizing their ability to execute what they're executing first and then intensifying that from there. So learning how to train first and learning how to generate tension through a tissue and brace and, and stabilize, et cetera. Um, and then once they have the skill set, then they can start to add load or add volume or both. Um, I think most people will kind of have that inverse relationship of throwing the kitchen sink at it, but not really optimizing anything as opposed to starting from the bare basics of learning how to train and then starting to advance that from there, if that makes sense. I'm saying, I think it's one of those things people forego the skill acquisition stage and they want to go yeah. straight into like the intensifiers of like, let's do triple drop sets, rest pause sets, let's do everything yeah. uh, rather than like thinking, okay, how can I make this one straight set of eight to 10 the most difficult and perfect thing I can do? Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, we can, we can, we can talk about this all day, but like from a, from a more beginner level client, you know, the most simple thing we can do for that, for example, would be in the initial stages of coaching, you know, pick a pool of exercises we want to choose that they do have the ability to, you know, they have the kit available for one. Um, but you know, the, the, the simple, skill of you know using an extremely slow tempo both eccentrically and concentrically and getting them to do maybe three second concentric three second eccentric and get them to just generate the most intense and accurate intramuscular tension they can through an exercise for a set of say eight to twelve and then over time not only can we broaden the exercise selection but a client needs to earn the right to move with speed and a client needs to earn the right to move with load and that initial stage of coaching the reason why we're picking those slower tempos is a, it's very easy to develop, to, to increase and maximize metabolic stress when they're moving slower through un under load. And if we look at the mechanisms, metabolic stress will equate to mechanical tension. So we're getting that training response. Now for a beginner client, we don't necessarily need to, we don't necessarily need to inflict a lot of muscle damage for them to progress. So we're not looking at for a beginner client to overload, consistently across the phase we're looking at for, the, for them to train efficiently first and recover and then once we get a little bit more advanced it's taking those initial skill sets and now getting them stronger with the skills they've already learned because you know so someone like yourself any of your advanced what you'd classify as your advanced clients long term there needs to be an element of progression there in terms of 
you know, the stimulus that we're putting on that tissue and the, the nervous system and the, the muscular skeletal system's ability to adapt to that. But we've got to earn the right to do that in the first place, if that makes sense. I'm saying I also think it's I use myself as a case of points I've done a few times. I've started working with a chap called Nick Loff. Yeah. Him. So Nick's an absolute G so shout out to him. So he uh, he's helped start helping me with my training side of stuff just to really put, pull me apart and like really nail stuff down. And one of the big things we've been doing is very similar as you saying, like slowing down the eccentrics and concentrics of movements so that I literally have no choice but try and stimulate the muscle I'm trying to use. And yeah. it's quite eye-opening is how difficult you can make an exercise when you really like nail it and slow it down. And I often get, and I imagine you, your clientele, some of them might be more advanced, but I often get to say, oh, this workout's too easy. I'm like, trust me, it's not too easy. It's the... The way you like, take out the workout and execute it is is a whole other thing. Like, I'll look at workouts sometimes. I'm like, this is gonna be pretty easy, and then by the end of it, you're broken. You're like, yeah, it's harder than I thought. Yeah, like it's the it's not what's on paper. It's the ability to apply what's on paper, mm -hmm. isn't it? Like, I'm mean, in that first lockdown. I had my entire lower body session was three sets of heel wedge safety bar squats and three sets of occluded walking lunges, and that was it for the entire session because I knew that. You know, to create a full contractile challenge with what I had, that was plenty. Um, and if I put everything I had into those six sets total, then that's me boxed off for the day. That's done. But it takes it takes a certain mindset to take yourself to that place, and it also takes a certain skill. And for a beginner client, they may need a little bit more workload to gain a sufficient amount of stimulus to adapt, because the intensity and the accuracy isn't quite there yet. But over time, you know as that accuracy starts to build and as that intensity builds, they could probably get away with doing a little bit less than what they were doing initially because they're getting more out of less, less workload, if that makes sense. You literally took the words out of my mouth. I was literally thinking the first thing is, is the skill of training intensely is what people don't yeah. understand. And it takes a while to build up to that. Or and I find the best way that people learn that is training with someone who's experienced. You yep. can really push them. And I remember, I think like, three, four years ago, I trained with James Hollingshead for like two, three weeks. And like the first time I trained with him, I was like, Jesus Christ, like it's, it's eye opening. Cause you think you train hard and then you train with someone else. You're like, I was only going like five out of 10. Like what have I been doing? Like, and um, that's why I think it's so important the people you surround yourself with, the people you're coached by, the people you train with, the gyms you train in when you can train in gyms uh, has such a big influence. I think on your end result often. Yeah. And I take James as an example some of that, some of that you can ingrain in someone and, and, and mold and learn. And some of that is just in them. Mm. And that's why they're at that level. And that's very rare, but it's why, you know, there's only one James Hollingshead in the world because he's got that instinct in him. And you, when you train with these guys and it was the same, the same with me training with, um, with Jordan last year, it's just, they, they're, they're able to take themselves to a different place psychologically. And that equates to, a different level of performance and a different level to attack a set. Um, and it's something that does definitely, I don't want to say rub off on you, but you definitely take something away from that when you can experience it firsthand for sure. Yeah, it's flipping the switch. On, on that note, do you have uh, any tips or tricks you do for yourself, the person you get yourself into that? Do you have anything, like what do you listen to in the gym? Uh, well, I'm mostly like metal and, metal and, and rock. I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of like the hip hop, um, gangster stuff. I'm more, uh, I'm more kind of a metal kind of guy, but I, um, I think I'm quite methodical in my approach. And then as soon as it's time for that set, then I can kind of switch on properly, but it's, uh, 
I can't kind of go when I'm moving into a session, like I'll just remain pretty calm, breathe, play some music. And that's me kind of visualizing what I want to do. And then when, when it's time for the set, then I'll, I'll breathe heavily a few times, make some noise and then get on with it. But it's uh, something that I've, uh, I've learned over time, like the more aggravated and aggressive I get to my approach, the more accuracy I lose within the set, if that makes sense. Like if I'm, I'm shouting and screaming and you know pulling the bar off the rack I'm, I'm forgetting all the cues that I need to remember to actually execute that movement and right you know how how do I want to move here what speed do I want to move that and at the skill set I'm at and you know I'm by no means you know elite level you know top tier but with anyone like that take James for example as a perfect example his ability to train in terms of a skill he doesn't even need to think about like if you put him under a bar and squat oh, he's going to contract what he needs to contract um, but it's the ability to take yourself through those sets and not lose focus on on the task. And I think being too aggressive does actually almost have a negative influence as opposed to a positive one. Hundred percent. And I've I've personally found that massively. Whenever I get myself almost too hyped up, you then end up you, your form goes out the window, and like you end up throwing it from the the bottom of the hack squat or wherever you whatever you're doing. And those are the sets where you end up getting little niggles or you pull something because. Yeah you're not actually thinking about embracing your core or what you're actually doing. You're just thinking about how can I move this from A to B? hundred percent. Definitely. Um, so yeah, I think that's something for people probably to take home from. Um, with obviously your own progression as a, a coach, Callum, as an athlete, like who, who have you learned the most from and who are you continuing your education with going forwards? Uh, so I was, first, my first ever coach was, uh, with James, James, uh, who actually works with the Muscle Mentals now. So James was the first person who ever, who ever coached me. Um, and then over the last couple of years, it's just been uh, taking little bits from, from multiple people. Um, you know, I've, I've done, from, especially from a pharmacological perspective, a lot of work with Dean, uh, a lot of work with Joe Jeffrey. Um, as a business, obviously, I'm, I'm blessed to have a lot of wise minds around me from a training standpoint. So James and Luke have had a big influence over my, my, my own programming and how I program for clients, um, which is why we've kind of created that team in the first place. But I guess, yeah, internally, the, the rest of the guys have had a big influence over my own programming. Michael Gordon at Integra, who, who, who teaches the RTS. Um, again, RTS is something that if you are a bodybuilder or a, or a, or a PT, um, delving into that from an educational side i think will be the biggest game changer when it comes to your ability to program and look at exercise in a different format and that's not just for that's not just for pt clients who are coaching gen pop that's for people who are coaching physique athletes as well because it, it does play a huge role in in the in your ability to program in an efficient manner and and you know create programming for clients with specific goals and you know whether they're working around specific ailments or they've got tissues that they need to develop and you need to figure out why it's not been why it's not been progressing in the past or how they need to approach execution or exercise selection in a different way. That plays a massive role. Um, yeah, that's, that's the beauty of the industry. It's just, uh, it's collaborating with people who have more, exp more experience in areas that you don't and being, being honest enough and being open-minded enough to listen to other people and, and learn and absorb. I'm sure that's the way I look at it. Like, I want to be like a sponge. I don't want to get certain pieces of knowledge from different people and then pull all these pieces together into my own brain, my own training, my own business, and everything they do. And that's, I think that's the fun of the process of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm not, not that I'm in computer games anymore, but it's like leveling up on like call of duty is the way I look at it. You're constantly like acquiring these skills, to try and scale 
scale the mountain of your own knowledge and your own physique and your own business and everything you do. Yeah, and like the, the take it as a prime example. It's um, the guys that the guys and girls that will go to for that knowledge. You know, if you look at their careers, they they've all done the same thing. They've all had their own mentors. They've all had their own educators. They've learned from. So it's just a process of of uh, whatever field and discipline you want to you want to kind of specialize in and, and become a master of, so to speak, over time. It's um, learning from the people who have, have been there and done it and can actually teach you you know, the, the method that they've put in place and what they've learned over that time frame. I think one of the things that I, I was guilty of this when I was younger, um, and I think a lot of people can't be guilty of this, it's like too much arrogance, they think they know everything. I think like particular chauvinistic young men, early 20s, something like my dad now, but um, that you think you know everything just because you've, you've, I don't know, you've built a certain amount of muscle, you've done X, Y, Z. And I think it's one of those things you suddenly come to realization at some point in life where you will never know everything and you will never be the best at something. There's always someone bigger, stronger, faster than you. And you just need to be open-minded and aware to keep on learning as it were. Yeah. hundred percent. Like one thing that we say, like within the, within our group of coaches is um, like the minute you think you've, you've mastered it is the minute you stop improving. And that's, that's so, so true. It's uh it's really, really, it's a very dangerous thing being in a position where you stop learning, you stop all that self-development stuff and you think, right, I'm good to go now because it will ultimately be your demise because everyone else is going to continue learning and you're not. And things evolve as well. Like we can still see literature coming out now over any topic, you know, areas and topics and things that we, as a discipline, things that we specialize in, everything's constantly evolving relative to things that are being found out, new literature, new ways of thinking. So if we're not keeping up to date with that, then essentially we're, we're falling behind. Yes, just complacency. Um, what would you say, is there anything you think is coming up into the fitness industry you think is going to be completely novel or game-changing from a training and nutrition side of things? Or do you think it's just going to be a continuing evolution of just like small marginal improvements everywhere? Um, I, just, I just draw back to, especially from a training standpoint, I just draw back to the, uh, the prevalence of, of exercise mechanics being more of a, more of a widespread um, source of education for, for trainers and, and bodybuilders and physique athletes and PTs. It's um, it really is the, it really is the foundation of, of coaching and, and programming. And it's something that is um, completely changed the way I think in terms of how I'm dealing with clients now I'm dealing with myself. So exercise mechanics and delving into anatomy and machine analysis and all these things are, are really the bread and butter of, how we program in the first place so if anything i think that that should and hopefully will become more of the forefront of you know when a pt goes to do their diploma at, at, at pt school it's um things are a little bit more specialized in terms of what they need to know as opposed to just kind of ticking boxes in, a, in an admin sheet okay so you, you brought this up so i'm gonna have to go into it so i did my level three pt course when i was 18 and trying to count about 13 years ago so yeah the and politely the standard of uh knowledge required to become a trainer was appalling mm. um do you think there's much actually in play to try and improve that because i think in my opinion from what i see it's just like a, a factory just to sign people off and make money in my opinion i find it a bit disgraceful in some some respects I th there's definitely been a lot of that in the past um i think the issue is a lot of those bigger companies that are doing that haven't advanced with the times and they're still doing the stuff they did 10 years ago which I think is really dangerous, um, especially when that's their first exposure to education as a coach. 
And then they're told, right, that's your level three diploma. You're ready to rock. And from their mindset, it's like, right, I'm, I don't need to do anything else. Now I can go and earn money and, and work with clients. As we both know, coaching is a continual stage of development. And, you know, realistically, from an education perspective and a professional development perspective, you getting your diploma is you starting. It's not you finishing. It's you actually starting in the first place. Um, I know that uh, the PT Collective um, are doing their own diploma now, their own qualified certified course, which will be much better than the majority of places you'll see. So there are definitely new people doing the courses now with more of an informed, educated, calculated way of doing things. It's just going to take some time for that to become mainstream and prevalent, probably. 100%. I think Lift the Bar, Lift the Bar, uh, Elk. LTB uh, lift the bar do one as well but I know the PT collective um, have, have brought one out too which will be definitely worthwhile doing cool one last question what's your uh, top three books you'd recommend can be training uh, mindset business whatever Ooh. do you feel into reading I say I'm an audiobook kind of man you can audiobook counts that's fine um, right let me go on my are you into audiobooks while you're doing check-ins so yeah I have done that before <laughs> More dog walks. Um, right. Well, one thing that from a mindset perspective, which is uh, I found to be incredibly powerful, more so when I was first starting to coach and like instill self-belief and confidence and have that kind of long-term visual um, aspiration for where I wanted to go was a lot of the stuff um, Tony Robbins has done in the past. And whether that is his books or, um, you know, we went to UPW in London in 2017, which is like a three-day or a four-day, I think it might be a three-day event. Um, but Tony Robbins and, and the stuff he does on mindset and psychology is, is huge. Uh, have you read his stuff before? Yeah, I actually saw him live at uh, Funnel Hacking Live, an event in Nashville last year. Yeah. And seeing someone control a room like that is insane. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's insane. It's uh, he's a very impressive guy. I actually like listening to a lot of his um, like short motivational clips on YouTube sometimes. When I first get up in the morning to get myself like fired up. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. Um, let me go on my Amazon bought list. Uh, Atomic Habits was on there last month. Yeah, Atomic Habits is probably the best book I read last year. I think I read that in the start of the first lockdown. To be fair, and created some very good habits. Yeah. Um, there's one more as well that, especially from mindset perspective, I'll find it now. Because I think now more than ever, mindset's probably a big one I think people are struggling with. Oh, yeah. So it's quite an old one. Um, I don't know when this was written. 19. Oh, no, there's, there's an updated one, 2015. Um, have you heard of Psycho-Cybernetics? Yeah, I've read it. I've read it. It's a very good book. Um, I, I must have read that about three times. Um, but one for, like, one for, yeah, I guess, like, one for giving to clients as well. Like, that's been something that I've made clients listen to an audiobook or buy the book and read it. There's a lot of value, especially from a coaching standpoint, there's a lot of value that can uh, be taken out of that when it comes to client psychology and just the process in general mindset what's the uh, the future for you callum then uh competing wise and business wise for muscle mentors the next year or two um so from a business perspective you know we're very much focused on 
continuing to grow the team with like-minded coaches and people that want to coach at the level we want to operate at and spread the message and continue to educate and inform. Um, but the, the, large, the large focus for us as a majority is, is continuing to grow that educational platform, continuing to grow the, the education portal, continue to host the events. And obviously COVID has made that a little bit more problematic in terms of live events, but that's where the website comes in. Um, we've got a lot of stuff planned from the standpoint of the education portal for this year in terms of uh, content and who we're getting on and what we're, what we're going to do on there. Um, my side, I'm still, I'm still deeply in love with, with coaching. And, uh, you know, Luke, my business partner is, is someone that is, he's heavily invested in education and, and teaching. Um, he's heavily invested in, in being up to date with current literature. And Luke is someone that's taken a, a step back from coaching to absorb and immerse into the, into the educational side of the business. And I've kind of, we, we, we I think you'll agree with, with any business, you've got to have people that specialize and do well at different things because you can't just, you can't just all try and maximize and, and jack, not jack of all trades then rather than the master yeah. so like lo, the the start of um last year we just had a sit down and we were like right we need to map out as a company logistically who's who's going to focus on what and what's going to be everyone individual kind of baby so to speak and this is where we we came up with kind of like right I, i'm the director of coaching you're the director of education and we'll grow them respectively from both of our mindsets being 100 focused and immersed on that um and for me coaching is still what I absolutely adore and love to do. Like that's, that's what excites me. So to continue to grow that coaching business from my side and um, I want to work with more top tier athletes. I want to work with more professional athletes. I want to work with more RPB pros. I want to work with, with more physique um, guys and girls and um, 20, well, 2020 should have been a big year, but wasn't because of COVID. Um, hopefully there'll be some pro shows this year and some pro cards as well. Um, if 2021 goes to plan in terms of timings and, and, and the pandemic, but, um, I guess there's, there's big aspirations from a coaching perspective. And then I think from an individual standpoint, you know, I'm happy as long as I'm making progress and whether, you know, the reason why I took a year out this year is so I could focus on my coaching. And I knew that with everything going on with work and if I had to prep myself, I don't want to be in a position where I can't maximize them both. Um, so I'll, I'll take another year out this year to make more progress, which is what I love to do anyway. So it's fine. And then I'll, I'll prep. Um, I'll prep next year. So you're effectively have a two year off season, two year off season. Yeah. So hopefully I think if I, if I can grow for another year, I reckon I can put maybe 70 pounds of muscle on between, between the last show and this next show, which would be very cool. Yeah. That, that would be uh, an impressive before and after photo, I think. Same condition, but with seventy pounds more muscle, which will be which will be cool. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, I, I, I have no shadow of a doubt that will happen with your uh, mindset consistencies. It's just a matter of time. Um, so we'll wrap things up there, Cam. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that. My pleasure. Um, where, where's the best place for everyone to find out about you, your, yourself, Muscle Mentors? Um, just literally, if you just head into Google and just type in the Muscle Mentors, um, the website will come up. That's where the portal is. That's where the coaching inquiry stuff is. Um, we're on YouTube. We've got a podcast um, all under the same name, The Muscle Mentors. And then Instagram is just The Muscle Mentors and all six of us will come up from there. Awesome. Absolute pleasure, Cam. I'll pop all your teasers in the show notes so anyone else can check that out. And I hope you have an awesome day. Thanks for having me on, man. So that was an absolutely insane episode of the podcast with Callum. I hope you guys absolutely love that. 
If you guys found it helpful, insightful, and motivational, please make sure you share this to your Instagram and Facebook stories. I'll be giving you one free place away on the Shrednate program for an entire year, worth over £300 to one person who shares this on your Instagram stories or Facebook stories and tags both myself and Callum on the podcast. As always, there's four free ways I can help you below this podcast in the links. So we've got my CJ Shredding Squad Facebook group, which is a free Facebook group full of knowledge tips to help you in 2021. We've got my free Absolute Abs uh, training course, which is a free abs training course with three different workouts, which I'll take you through step-by-step how to build your ultimate six-pack. Then we've got a free six-pack strategy call in which we can discuss with you directly, with myself, with the CGA coaching team, how we can get you world-class results in 2021 and help you guide out to build your dream physique. And then lastly, you can join and subscribe to my YouTube channel where I've got daily video tips going out to help you build the ultimate version of yourself. We've got some huge guests coming on for 2021. So make sure you stay listening in for the Shredder Show podcast and we'll see you in the next episode.